Any questions from what we have gone through so far? I wasn't here last week. Um, if, if it would be possible to give me a brief recap, that would be great. All right. Um, a brief recap. Um, so, what I did, we, we basically um, finished off chapter 1 and went through chapter 2 of Genesis. Uh, I did notice that at the end from chapter 1, verse 28 and following, that the dominion that is given to man is spoken to man by God. That means that man understands. When we got into chapter 2, we saw that the first three verses really belong, in a sense, to the first chapter because they are written in such a way, you can tell it more in a Hebrew, um, they're written in such a way that they dovetail, actually, they kind of mirror the first verse, the first few verses. And that has to do with the Sabbath. And the Sabbath... Uh, doesn't make any sense unless it's actually a seventh day. If it's just a seventh period, a seventh, you know, thing that God did, there's no point in God using an ordinal number, you know, the seventh. So in the text itself, there's there's no indication that the word day that we have was actually in the original language intended as anything else. Correct. In these, where there's an ordinal, first, second, third, uh, the word day is governed by the ordinal number and, and also by the evening and the morning scenario that you find in the first six. Now, the seventh day doesn't have evening and morning. And this has led scholars to believe that the seventh day is still in operation. It's still open-ended. Uh, I reject that view. Um, because I think that the interpretation of Exodus chapter 20 verse 11, if you want to turn there, really depends on the fact that the seventh day was a 24-hour day too. God rested, in other words, that he changed his phase of operations on that day and then moved forward from that time. It's not really a huge deal, But because God makes a point of saying in six days God created the heavens and the earth and then on the seventh day he rested, therefore you rest on the seventh day. If he's still resting, yeah, we can just have a very long seventh day, can't we? Like God did. It doesn't make any sense to me, but maybe, maybe it's just me. You were, you were talking about a literal interpretation and God saying what he meant and so the use of the word yom yes. to signify day. Yes. Is there any other meaning that can be drawn directly from that? Other than... Um, not from the straightforward reading of the text. Other meanings have been drawn from it. Well. Yeah. But not from a straightforward... Even, you will find, uh, even... Well, first of all, liberal scholars, people that don't believe the Bible at least don't believe it's the word of God. They just believe it's an ancient document, okay? Like the Gilgamesh epic and so on. You would just lump it in with something like that. It's just Israel's religious book. Uh, They say that it teaches that God created in six days, literal days, because they say that's what it says. 
And then they say, ha, 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 you know, the same as the world is supported on the backs of turtles all the way down, you know. They just take it like that. But there's not a question. There's no question of, of the text, whether the text says it. Even people, um, I mean, there's no point in me throwing scholars' names at you, but even people that don't take the uh, literal interpretation and, and want millions of years in there, they say, well, yeah, taken at face value, it says, it says seven literal days. But then what they do in order to bring in their other interpretation is, do you want me to go through this stuff again real quick? Okay. Uh, is that they, they look at, well in fact I didn't really go into this, but they have different approaches to it, okay? So there's the day age theory. Okay? Which is a day equals an age. And the age, well it's got to be a, a Big age. It's no use saying a million years. Which would be based on a C1 proposition, right? What? Which would be based on C1? What would? The day age. No. No. Sarcasm. Oh, okay. No sarcasm. Let me get on with this. Uh, So the day age, you see, you'd have to put um, probably billions of years in here in order to make it worthwhile. Because who are you trying to match up with? Yeah, evolutionists or, or people that believe in the Big Bang and stuff like that. Well, the Big Bang was, um, what, 14.6 billion years ago now? It used to be, when I was young, it was 21 billion years ago. Now it's 14.6 billion years ago. But, um, so, you know, it's lessened by billions of years just in the time I've been alive. Uh, but maybe that's a... The speed of light's done that or something, I don't know. So you got this, okay? But obviously this is a push. This is, a, this is just trying to, to make it billions of years because you're embarrassed by the people in lab coats. Yes? The text itself doesn't give you any uh, in, uh, encouragement to do that, especially because of Exodus 20 verse 11. Then you have the framework hypothesis, Meredith Klein stuff, and the framework hypothesis also, of course, wants billions of years, but what that does, it it says, well, what you have in, uh, you have like setting in the first days, and then you have a filling of the setting in the next bunch, you see. So what you have really is you have the air made, okay, the sky made on day, what was it, day two? Um, and then you have the birds made in day five. Do you see? To fill the sky. So that here in that, you're not even talking about any kind of a sequence at all, really. You're just talking about the fact that the first uh, few days, that's talking about God setting the picture up, and then the next uh, six day, three days, sorry, is God filling what he's already done. Okay? But again, you, the reason they're doing this is because they want billions of years. All right? Nobody who adopts the framework hypothesis believes in a young earth. And that's what give the, gives the game away, you see. Then you have the analogical 
view. And the analogical view is that, well, just like an analogy, just like a sequence of six literal days, this is how God logically made the world. These are the steps that he took. But it has nothing to say about how long it took, and so science has to tell us how long it took, and science tells us billions of years. Okay? Uh, If you want uh, day-age view, this is not held an awful lot uh, anymore, but um, Walter Kaiser, who's a very fine scholar, conservative in a lot of ways, Walter Kaiser holds this view. Uh, Meredith Klein is famous for this view, but a lot of reformed guys, you know what I mean by reformed? Okay? Five-point Calvinists, covenant theology, the churches in the Old Testament, God's through with Israel, that stuff, yeah? Uh, can, I, can I make a joke? Okay? Um, I, I do this, and, and even some reformed guys laugh at this, Okay? I, came, I went to a reform seminary, by the way. I, re, I read reform authors all the time. Um, so I greatly appreciate them. But uh, when you come, you can always tell a reformed Christian because they're always right. Okay? It is a joke. They're always right. Okay? They're not in the discussion to discuss whether they're wrong. They're in the discussion to tell you that you're wrong. Okay? Um, you ever met anyone like that? Oh, yes. Okay. Um, not all of them, but it, it's, the joke is funny because it happens a lot. So that's the analogical, okay? It's just highlighting that some kind of a logical order, but again, we, we need millions of years. All right, so uh, John Lennox, again, would take this kind of review. Okay, Seven Days That Changed the World, that book, little book. Uh, he would take this view. Okay, so... Oh, and then you've got this one too. Well, let's, let's throw this one in. This is C.I. Schofield and uh, Gap uh, between Genesis 1, 1 and 1, 2. And in that gap... Uh, is actually another earth, another world, Satan's world. Satan governed it. Um, The person that really pushed this was a guy called G.H. Pember in his book Earth's Earliest Ages in uh, the second part of the 19th century. Pember's a very good writer. He's an English guy, uh, very educated. Uh, But he got this from a Scottish guy, Thomas Chalmers, who also was a great guy, but was uh, uh, trying to put evolution in there too, you see. And he, Thomas Chalmers came up with, um, with the gap, you see, between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And then Pemba kind of filled it in with this, this pre, uh, pre-Adamic kingdom that Satan ruled over. And it really, uh, somebody came to me last week, it was, I think it was you, yeah, and uh, said, well, uh, you know, when it says uh, replenish the earth, yeah, to Adam, 
that that replenish only made sense if it was previously plenished. Do you see? Well, actually it doesn't because the word replenish in King James and in fact its own dictionary meaning generally, it can mean fill again, but it can also mean just fill. Okay, that's what it means. That's what the Hebrew word means. Um, C.I. Schofield, I've got a Schofield reference Bible in front of me. Uh, C.I. Schofield believed that and so on. Um, it has no biblical credence whatsoever. First of all, it doesn't, it doesn't actually do what they want it to do. It just creates more problems. Now you've got to find a kingdom of Satan, okay, which they do by going to Jeremiah. But Jeremiah is, is not dealing with a kingdom of Satan. He's dealing with something else. Um, so no one holds to the gap theory anymore apart from one guy that I know of who is actually a teacher of mine. <laughs> a guy called Arnold Fruchtenbaum. And uh, he's a good scholar, but he, he holds to these Pemberisms. Uh, he is a, um, he's a good guy and I, uh, I don't want to knock him in any way because I've learned a lot from him, but, um, he's a messianic Jew, not of the radical kind, okay? But you need to be careful of Jewish exegesis, okay? Jewish exegesis is the, is the kind of exegesis that couldn't see Jesus when he was right in front of them. All right, just remember that. Okay, it goes off into wild speculation. That's, it's, that's a mark of, of Jewish exegesis, even today. All right, so just watch for that. Okay, you can learn a lot, but you can also get, you know, get in the, in the mud because of it. Anyway, so none of these really, they're all forced. None of them are really dealing with what the text is actually saying. They're all trying to say, yeah, I know it says that, but. Okay, so why? Why the but? Yeah. Because we need the millions of years, do you see? So, the big problem is that, here's one of my drawings, is that um, instead of, that's the Bible, okay, was, can I see? All right. So, instead of going to the Bible and saying the Bible is sufficient to tell us what it needs to tell us, they are going to the guys in lab coats who are helping us to interpret the Bible. Do you see? That is a denial of one of the most important principles of Scripture itself, which is the principle of sola scriptura, that the Bible itself is sufficient. If you want to know a doctrine of the Bible that is the most attacked doctrine, it's that, the sufficiency of Scripture. You must always defend the sufficiency of Scripture. Which leads so nicely into chapter 3 of Genesis. Because the very first thing that's going to be questioned is what God said. You see? Alright. Chapter 2, by the way, um, we just, we spoke about the fact that um, God, in putting Adam to sleep after he'd counted all the animals and, and had a look at them and given them names, that God was also helping Adam to understand that he was alone and that he needed a mate. Once 
uh, once that had been done, then God put him into his sleep and gave him a wife, and brought the wife to him. Okay, that's all we can do for last week. This week, sure. Genesis 3, you all know Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty or cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. When did the God make the beasts of the field? Chapter 1, day 6. Okay, first part of day 6. So, the serpent, this is the first thing that the author is telling you, the serpent is one of the beasts of the field that was made uh, in the first part of, of day 6 before the man. And the man was given dominion over the beasts of the field. So, there's a subtle hint there about... Um, What's going to happen? There's an idiotic conversation that goes on in a minute that shouldn't have gone on. But anyway, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, so right away we've got a talking serpent. Now, um, oh dear, look at this. I think this is a... Do you think that was a wet race? I'd find that out now. Um, remind me not to use the blue one again. Well, talking serpents. Well, we all know Dr. Doolittle, I suppose. He talked to the animals. But did Adam, or should Adam and Eve have talked to the animals? Um, I know that in The Last Battle by C.S. Lewis we have talking animals. In fact, well, we do it in the first of the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, but that is a, a kind of an allegory. Okay? He's not trying to say that in the beginning there were literal talking animals. He's talking about the fantasy land and he's using the animals to talk about another animal, who's Aslan, do you see? Um, so there isn't any, there's nothing that, that, that is in these sources, either Dr. Doolittle or in the Chronicles of Narnia, that we should take as good theology for interpreting Genesis chapter 3. It's much better for us to ask the question, why is the serpent talking? Um, we don't know. None of the other animals are talking to him. And so it, is seem, it does seem to be a rather unusual event. But, or talking to her, sorry, the woman. But let's, let's that, let that go, okay? Let's just let that pass and say, okay, so we have a talking serpent, nothing unusual about that. There is something wrong with what the serpent says. What's he doing? Has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? That's a very short, very simple statement. It questions what God has said. Now, what have I 
drummed into you by now. We're only on week four and I've already drummed it into you a lot. That God means what he says. Okay? So straight away, here's somebody showing up saying, does God mean what he says? You know, let's just be clear about this. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not really sure what God said to you. Did he really say to you that you weren't to eat of any of the trees of the garden? I just want to get that right. I'm going to get that straight. Well, she might have replied, what business is it of yours? What he said to me. He wasn't speaking to you. He was speaking to me. You know what? We'd have been in a much better position right now if she'd have just answered that way. But he, he asks, has God said, questioning the word of God, please understand that the most important uh, function of error any error is to throw the word of God into doubt. Um, Satan, more than anything else, wants you to doubt God. So, talking about unsaved people, we're now the other side of this. Unsaved people, he wants them to doubt God. So he will um, give them all kinds of different ways to doubt God. He will mock the accounts. He will um, question whether God even exists. He will say, well, we don't need God. He will, he will talk about history. He will talk about the age-old uh, thing that every generation gets caught up in, which is this chronological snobbery, uh, which is we know more than those people before us. Yes? Our age is terrible for that. So it's no, we don't need to know the past. I mean, we, we've got... Uh, you know, cell phones and microwave ovens and stuff. So Satan does that. Science and uh, different explanations of science. Lots of different ways. Biblical criticism, liberal scholarship and so on. All kinds of different ways. But the, the one thing that they all collude in doing is throwing doubt on the word of God. For the Christian, this is where it hits us, God also wants you to doubt the word of God and wants me to doubt the word of God. If you can get you or me to doubt that God really loves you, God really knows what you're going through, God really cares about you, God really cares about your family, God... um, you know, if he was a really good God like the Bible says he is, he wouldn't allow this. Do you see? The Bible says without faith it is impossible to please him. Faith, as I've already told you, is impossible unless you believe that God means what he says. If God can mean anything, then what are you to believe? Or, you might have this absurdity where you read a passage uh, of scripture, an admonition or something, and you interpret it one way, 
and I interpret it another way and we've both got faith and it's both equally pleasing to God. And so is the other guy's faith and so is the other guy's faith. So that we have a multiplicity of subjective interpretations of the word of God, all of them which God says they're all good, they're all fine. Because the important thing is just this faith. Not faith in the content, do you see? But faith in your own um, understandings of things. Do you see the problem there? That's not faith at all. Faith is, ah, God says this. God says, be still and know that I am God. And you don't want to be still. Okay? But he says, be still. So faith will say, I'm not going to obey what I want, what my inclinations are. I'm going to obey what God says because I know what he says. And that gives God glory. Satan will come in and get you to doubt that. He always uses these maneuvers because they're so effective. And because we fall for them all the time. You know, some of us are very good at going through um, used car lots. And the salesman comes out with a big smile on his face and a card in his hand can I show you around the car? And some of us say, no thanks, well, thanks very much, I'm just looking. And he presses it and presses it, no, thank you very much. And there's some of us, they're not quite so good at handling the sales guy and if we're not careful, we're going to be driving off with a car we can't afford. Um, we need to understand what is right, what God says, and stick to it. So when Satan comes in, or Satan's emissary comes in and wants to sell us that car, that we stick to our guns. Do you see? Because we know what God says. Um, but here he is. How, he wants some clarification here. It's kind of innocent. It's all innocent stuff here. Has he said... You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. I'm not sure. There's a bit of ambiguity in what God says here. God should talk more clearly. These are all things that you can infer from this text. Okay? I'm not reading much into this. Put yourself in a situation. People that come along and they want clarification of something, either they weren't listening, or they have got an ulterior motive. Okay, They're questioning the clarity of the pronouncement or the prohibition in this con- context. Now, we know that the, uh, the prohibition wasn't for the serpent, so whether he heard it or not is really neither here nor there, is it? So it's probably about, well, I just, you know, there's a bit of misunderstanding, a bit of... Uh, Ambiguity in what God says. Can you just clear that up for me? Please watch for that. Okay? Please watch for that. Um, can I go on my, a little, just a, a little one minute rant? Okay? If you were studying the Bible and you took it seriously and you, you stopped using it like a little devotional to make you feel good, you wouldn't be as likely to get fooled like that. Isn't that true? Neither would I. 
if God's people would actually take the word of God seriously and pay attention to what it's saying, then they wouldn't be dupes for every emissary that Satan sends into the church with a big smile and saying, God bless you and, you know, quoting scripture because Satan quotes scripture and say, oh, isn't he a nice person? Do you see? There's a lot rides on this. But let me move on. I'm only on verse 1. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden. But why are you asking anyway, since it's none of your business, and I'm over you anyway. I'm an authority over you. I have dominion over you. But unfortunately she didn't say that. She said, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat of it, nor shall you touch it. Lest you die. Nasty God. Um, Do you ever, you've heard of the problem of evil, you know, the problem of evil. If, if, If God was a good God, then... Uh, why does he allow all this nasty stuff? Which is a good question. So there's nothing wrong with the question at all. But it's a very old question. It takes a, a kind of a form here, a primitive form, in what, uh, what Eve replies to the serpent's question with. God, you see. God has said... So she's now being a spokesperson for God. So let's see if she gets it right. God has said, that tree in the midst of the garden, you can't eat of it. And you can't touch it. Lest you die. Alright, what's another word for lest? Give me a synonym for this word here. Don't do less, do that lest you... So what's the synonym? Like unless uh, or else you will or uh, you'll be in danger of or something like that. Okay? Or or you'll die. Okay? What is now somebody read for me Genesis two seventeen, sixteen or seventeen actually. Let's see what God actually said. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Okay. Not lest you die. Not uh, you'll be, you know, in peril. Uh, there's a danger, so just be careful here. I'm just doing you a favour and warning you. He didn't say that at all. He says, you will surely die. You will surely die. And God didn't say anything about touching it. They can touch it as much as they want. So what is Eve doing? What is she doing? Paraphrasing. She's paraphrasing the word of God. That's right. 
but she's putting her own spin on it, her own little interpretation on it. Now, what is the... Um, again, look at Genesis 1, uh, sorry, Genesis 2, 16 and 17. Is it a C1, a C2, a C3, a C4, or a C5? In other words, do you have to infer anything from what God said? It's a complete direct statement, okay? How would you, if you uh, had to do uh, an interpretation of what God said, it would, well, yeah, that tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, I shouldn't eat of it because in the day I eat of it, I will surely die which is what it says. There's your interpretation. It's a, it's a complete match, do you see? Eve's interpretation isn't a direct match. Eve's interpretation is kind of, well, she adds some stuff. She started to infer stuff. And then she started to detract and lessen the, the, um, the danger that's inherent in eating. So, she's down in C4 territory, do you see? She's kind of changed the meaning of it. I mean, not completely, but importantly, you can't touch it, so she's added to the word of God, and she's taken out that word surely, so she's taken away from the word of God. Do you see that? And we're only in Genesis 3, verse 2. We're not going, we're not doing very well. Or verse 3, actually. So, again, some little application here. We have to dig into this, think about it, come up with something that's going to help us in our lives of faith. Don't add to the Word of God. Don't take away from the Word of God. Don't lessen the impact of the Word of God. Don't paraphrase unless you have to. You don't have to paraphrase a straightforward verse. There's very few verses in the Bible you have to paraphrase, actually. Very few. Um... And... um, don't talk to serpents. Don't forget that one. I think it's a pretty good one. It's, it's not divine, but it's, from, it's a good one. It's interesting Satan's um, sly question. Of, you know, yeah. Just the way words it. You know, look, at, look what happens next, though, guys. See, verse 4. Then the serpent said to the woman, you shall not what? Oh, so he does know what what God said. He does know. So again, if she'd have been thinking, she would have stopped herself and said, well, hold on a minute, how did you know that God said surely? You're the one questioning about what God said, but you remembered what God said. So the word that she omitted, he puts back in there. Um, I haven't got to the bottom of that, but uh, that's worth 
praying about and meditating on for a, a good long while. Okay, what uh, what was the point of Satan risking jogging her memory by putting the word back in that she omitted? Is there some kind of reverse psychology going on? I'm not a big psychology guy, by the way. I'm a biblical counsellor. But um, was, is there a kind of a reverse psychology thing going on where he is, by putting the, the word surely back in, he's reinforcing a doubt? Possible that that kind of thing is happening. He certainly is confident that he's got her where he wants her. He's also lying. You shall not surely die. Well, God said you would. So now he set himself up. Remember, he's a serpent. He's below her. He set himself up now as an authority above her. In fact, he's not just a, a little bit above her. He's equal with God. So now, instead of one authority... She is allowed another authority. Two conflicting authorities. Remember that. And he's got his reasons for his answer. For God knows, now he he seems to know what God knows. God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Alright, first thing he's saying is God's wrong and this is the correction. Second thing he's saying is that he knows what God knows and what God knows is that if you eat this you're going to be like him and obviously the, the inference is God doesn't want you to be like him. God doesn't want you to know what I know about him, about his character. Do you see? So I'm telling, I'm giving you the inside story here about this God that you've been listening to. In the day you you eat of it, your eyes, no, you're not going to surely die. Your eyes are going to be opened. Oh, what you know now what you enjoy now, it's, it's nothing compared with what you could know. Your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. That mean God that's stopping you from getting access to all of this knowledge. Knowing good and evil. What does that mean? Does that mean that, that Eve didn't know the words good and evil? No, it doesn't mean that folks, okay? She knew what the word good mean and good meant and she knew what the word evil meant. Knowing good and evil, this has got to do with a knowledge over, uh, a knowledge to adjudicate, a knowledge that only God can have between good and evil, particularly, to judge those things. The reason that God can judge these things is because he is the final source 
and measure of all that is good. Evil is anything that detracts from that standard. The more it detracts and goes away, the more evil it is. Only God can make that adjudication because only God is God. Only God is the standard. Do you see? (laughs) So, the promise here is that God is going to be, oh sorry, Eve is going to be like God. Well, Eve knows that God's the creator. Eve knows that she has been created by God from Adam. Um, She knows that this world that that she's been put in is a beautiful, uh, ordered, colourful, peaceful world. And yet... Satan's uh, trickery is just very simple, isn't it? There's something else. There's something else. Just lit that spark of discontent in her. So, we all need to be very careful of discontent. We need to be very careful of that. Um... I myself, last year, went through a period of quite a lot of discontent okay, because things were not working out the way I wanted them to work out. And so on. You guys over there, without going into your stuff, you may have felt periods of discontent because of the upheavals that you've gone through and so on. We've got to be careful when it comes up, we need to suppress it. Suppress it with the truth. Suppress it with the, uh, the word of God. The authority of the only God. Now, guys, we don't need to be like God. The only thing we need is to be with God. We, God's perfectly capable of being God without our help. Okay? And we're perfectly happy and should be content with being what God made us to be. In fact, we will only be content if we are happy with what God has made us to be. So you'll know, um, you'll be like God. And there's more here that I could go into, but we've got to move on. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Last week, remember, I read to you Genesis 2.9 and I said pay attention to it. Somebody read that out for me. Now you got it. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the, to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden. Okay, that's fine. 
That's all I need. Sorry to interrupt your good reading, but that's all I need. What we've got here is Now this is Moses as the writer inspired by God telling you two things about the trees, all of the trees, including the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They were all pleasant to the sight because God cares about our uh, aesthetic uh, contact with what he's made. He doesn't make ugly things for us. He makes beautiful things for us and good for food. Now look at what Eve does in chapter 3, verse 6. Eve saw that the tree was what? Good for food, one, okay. What else? Pleasant to the sight. And what else? Oh, yeah. Okay, where's that in Genesis chapter 2? Where'd you get this piece of information from? Yeah. She got it from another authority. But she, it comes in and it's treated on the same authority as what God says. Now please um, pay attention to this bit because it's really, really important. Okay? She's not eaten it yet. But she's already in Satan's grasp. You see, we've been made to be Um, under the authority of the word of God. Adam and Eve were under the authority of the word of God. Do you see that? The spoken word in fellowship and so on. And that word of God, within its parameters, gave freedom for naming the animals, um, analysing the world, coming to appreciate what God had done, returning it back in worship and all of those things. There was freedom there under the word of God. But the word of God was the standard that mustn't be stepped over. Now what's happening is that she's agreeing with the word of God, but she's not under it. Do you see that? Now she, instead of being under the word of God, which is what we're designed to be, now she's stepping outside of it and analysing it. Now, uh, she is the arbiter. Now she's the one who's going to determine what is the standard. She's been moved from a... um, a position of absolute dependence on the word of God to a position of independence. 
Tell me that you see that. Unless you don't see it, then don't tell me. Do you see what I'm saying? She has moved from dependence on the word to independence, analysing it, and it's because she analyses it, she's no longer under it, she's just summing it up, seeing whether she agrees with it or not, and actually she does. But then she feels free to add something else too, because she's no longer under it. Okay, this is... This is our default position. Ever since this, this. This is your default position and it's mine. It's every person born into the world. If left to ourselves, we will do exactly what Eve did. We'll hear the word of God and we'll look at it and we'll sum up whether we agree with it or not and if we agree with it, good and if we disagree with it, that's fine too. The important thing is we arrogate to ourselves that ability, that authority. Are we going to believe it or not? But it's up to us. Because we're independent of the word. We're independent. Guys, even before she took the fruit, she moved herself from, uh, into a position that she was never supposed to be in. And we've been in that position ever since. Not because of her, but because of what happened next. So our default position when we come to this book is to whether agree with it or not agree with it. The unsaved person, when he hears the gospel, he's going to size up whether he agrees with it or not. Is it the word of God? Yes. He's a creature. Should he believe it? Yes. Does it come with authority? Yes. What does he do with the authority? Decides whether it's going to be an authority or not. That's what independence does. Independence is our problem. Okay, before we move on, let's see how we can make sense of this in our present world. So, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, somebody, I'm trying to let you... um, have a little bit of audience participation here. Without faith it is impossible to please him, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is the rewarder of them that diligently seek. Okay. So this says, without, sorry about this. Mm. Can't get away with that.
And we know that the hymn is God. Lost faith. Mm, what if your knowledge is false? Doesn't everyone know that God is who he is? Yeah, but that's why your definition isn't good enough. Because okay. it's if your knowledge is false, then acting on that knowledge is not going to be good enough. It's not going to be biblical faith. Do you see? Um, I mean, it's, it's a good try. Well, what does verse 1 say? Hebrews 11, verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Okay. The things hoped for, how do you know about them? How do you know about the things that are hoped for? Because God, that's it. How come you've got a conviction about things that you can't see? Who told you about them? God. So faith is... Trust in the Word of God. Do you see? Right. If you have faith, here we are, here's the, this is all of us, okay? And uh, we're independent, so, so we've got some little horns going on there because we've trusted Satan. Okay? So we're independent and we're going our own way. Okay? God says that we are to have faith in him. Faith cancels that out, that independent, and it takes us back to God. In other words, no longer are we independent. To the degree that we have faith on God, we are dependent on God. That's what faith is for. Faith is to counteract our autonomy. Do you see that? Faith will bring us back in line with what God says. So when I'm tempted, I want to wonder. I want to be independent. I want to sort the thing out. How's God going to do it? He's going to do it either this way, this way, this way, or this way. Okay? And I can't see how he's going to do any of those ways, so I might as well throw up my hands and despair of God. I'm thinking like that because I'm not under the word of God. I'm thinking independently. That's why I'm worrying. If I have faith, faith says, well, God knows. God cares. God sees. God wants me to be calm and trust him. And know that I don't have to figure it out for him. He's perfectly capable of, you know, if I dream up a thousand ways God can do it, he can do it in about a million other ways that I've not thought of. And I rest in that. So faith, do you see, is that which causes me to rest, to trust God, and in that I'm pleasing God. I'm not pleasing God when I'm railing at God, or I'm despairing, or I'm, you know, just, I've, the world's just got too much, or whatever. I'm only doing what God wants me to do when I'm dependent on God. Now that, by the way, is something that in the West is difficult for us. 
that kind of faith is difficult for us because of our affluence, because of the American dream. And we feel the pull of it, don't we? Yes? And we gear our lives to, to suit that pursuit, which, by the way, in many cases, is not an illegitimate pursuit, but beware of it because it can pull us away from dependence on God. So, I hope that you, you see here what's at stake. Also, and the final thing before we actually go on to the fall, the final thing here is, is this. In a state of independence, we will often either add to the word of God, okay, something else, often something nice that we like. Um, you know, God wants to bless you, he's got a wonderful plan for you and all that sort of stuff. Well, he may have the arena for you. You know, try saying that to, to uh, Christians in Syria and Baghdad right now. God's got a wonderful plan for your life? Really? With ISIS outside the gates? No, the plan for your life may be that you get your head chopped off. That's one of these. Hmm? No, I don't like that either. But we've got to re- recognize that trust in God is trust in God. That he's good, that he cares, that even in difficult circumstances, a diagnosis of cancer, death of a loved one, stuff like that, God is still good. Do you see? That's what faith is. That's what faith is. Faith looks at the character of God, looks at what God says about himself, says he'll never leave you, he'll never forsake you, um, that he, his love uh, for you is more than you can understand, because who can understand what it costs to send Christ that all the hairs of your head are numbered, even if those some of you don't have any hairs. Uh, the hairs that you used to have, they were all numbered. And um, his thoughts toward you are more than you could number. I like the end of Psalm 40. It says, though I'm poor and needy, God thinks upon me. That's faith. Do you see? So, um, we need to stop here, but I can't really stop without Adam. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, agreeing with God, but it doesn't matter if you agree with God if you're independent from God, that's not faith. That's just you agreeing with God. A tree desirable to make one wise. God never said that. She took of its fruit and ate. You see, that's the danger. We'll do things, dumb things, things that God says don't do because we're independent. She also gave to her husband with her, so it seems as though he was hanging around, and he ate. 
Now we don't, we can't go into all of this psychoanalysis about why he ate. Oh, he was, you know, he saw the death creeping over her face, and he loved her so much that he decided to, for love's sake, take the fruit. Okay, no, he was willful. He was willful. First Timothy chapter two tells us that the woman was not in the transgression, but the man was not fooled. Okay? The woman was fooled. That's a reason Paul gives, by the way, for no women preachers and teachers in the, in the uh, churches. Okay? Unless that woman is supervised by a man. First Timothy chapter 2. It's around about verse 14. Around there. So, um, why? Because of the fact that Eve was fooled, but that Adam, he was in the transgression. Do you see? Because he wasn't fooled. Well, if he wasn't fooled, why did he eat? Because he was willful. Because he was willful, that's why. It was a high-handed sin. It's not that, uh, we're not told, it's not that, that Adam listened to the serpent or believed the serpent. It's just that he listened to his wife. He knew that she was wrong. So that's an opportunity for a joke there, but I'm not going to take it. All right. Yes, yes, very good point. He was supposed to protect her. Yes, several counts he did, yes. And their eyes were opened, just as Satan has said. Because Satan does tell the truth sometimes. Um, So some of our... mm, Some of the most popular Bible teachers, whose names will be, you know, not be spoken, but who have huge followings, people say, how can you dislike this person? I've been so blessed by what they've said, and this is is truth in what this person says. Well, sure. Of course there is. There's truth in what Satan says. You'll be blessed by his preaching too. So what? What about the error? It's not the truth that's the problem. It's the error that's the problem. What about that? You judge a person not on the fact of of whether they're telling the truth occasionally, but on how much error is there and the sort of error. Not, oh, this person blessed me and I feel so blessed and, and uh, everyone's blessed. What on earth? What kind of criteria is that? The, yeah, I know, I know. I'm the pastor of a church, I know that. The eyes of both of them were opened. Oh yeah, they were opened. And they knew something too. Because he'd said you'd know something. But he said liar, that, that they would know good and evil, like God. They'd be like God in that way. 
Well, they did know something, but it wasn't about that. They knew that they were naked. That's kind of an odd thing. They, were, they knew that they were naked. They knew that there was um, something about their appearance that uh, was, made them ashamed now. Didn't before, but now all of a sudden it did. Looking at each other, they felt the need to go rushing to the bushes and, you know, cover themselves. That is a very odd thing when you think about it. I mean, we, it's difficult for us to think about it because if we did it now, you know, it, it would be perverse. But um, back then, they, they came from, from God. God introduced the woman to the man. She was naked. He was naked. And it was all good. It was all fine. They, they weren't thinking what, we're thinking right now. Do you see? That, that oddness and that un, uh, discomfort and so on. So clearly there was nothing wrong with being naked then. That's how we, we were supposed to be. But then they knew they were naked. And the word know there is taking on this connotation of a, a, a kind of a negative knowledge there's something wrong here whereas there wasn't anything wrong a moment ago now there's something wrong something's happened to us both and rem- and look at this when did it happen when were both of their eyes opened when who ate the fruit adam not when eve ate the fruit when Adam ate the fruit, both of their eyes were open because Adam was the head of the woman, head of the race. So this is why the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 5 can have this Adam-Christ uh, uh, analogy here. Do you see? You can look that up, Romans five twelve through 21. So um, he's the head of the race. And Eve and everybody else that comes from Adam are affected by what Adam did. If Eve would have just taken the the fruit and Adam wouldn't, the human race would not have died. She may well have died. Okay? But the race wouldn't have died. Only when Adam took it. So the problem, the fault is Adam. Okay? Can't blame, you know, well, can't do what Adam is going to do, which, which is blame the woman, which really blame God. No, it's him. It's his willfulness. He is responsible for the fall. But they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And then it gets really sad. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Um, this is um, the first theophany. It's, a, it's a, probably God taking on a form that's suitable to fellowship with man. So even though it doesn't say it, it's 
probable. You don't have to read it in there because it doesn't say it. But he's walking. I mean, the, the Hebrew does have this, this idea of, of uh, passing through, but it, it, he's probably walking through. He's taking a form that, that uh, he can fellowship with his creatures with. Later on, probably. And um, what's God doing there? Just come to check it out? Just come because he likes it? Wants to change from heaven? No, he's come to fellowship with his creatures. He's come to meet them. And Adam and his wife hid themselves. So they're ashamed of their nakedness and now they're ashamed of God. And where do they hide themselves? Among the trees of the garden which they could eat from and they could enjoy. There was just one tree. One stinking tree that they didn't have to eat from. And now they're, they're not concerned anymore with the beauty of the trees or with their food. Now they're using them to hide behind from the presence of God. They were never meant to be used as, as barriers for a, you know, a silly game of hide and seek from the divine eyes. Can you see the the corruption of the mind that's gone on? A corruption that goes out to the the woman that has been given to Adam and now he's ashamed to look on her and she's ashamed to look on him or they're ashamed to look on on themselves like this. So there's, there's a problem, there's a corruption gone on in their fellowship, in their communication. Uh, then there's a corruption that's gone on in their fellowship with God, which was figured by things going wrong in that creative uh, relationship. And so they hide from God. And then even their environment is being used for something it was never used for. So they're thinking in a way, in, the, in this beautiful environment, they're thinking in a way within it that they were never supposed to think. And we do that. So, um, I try not to read the news. I mean, it's all bad anyway. Um, So, a bunch of people have died and ISIS has killed a bunch of other people in horrific ways and the government's all corrupt and uh, maybe there's been another mass shooting somewhere and everything's going to pop. It's basically the headline, yes? In any given day. Yes, yes. And England got knocked out of the World Cup. There's probably another one that comes out, another terrible headline that comes up every four years. But, um, so, you, you know, you have things like that. Why does, why does this stuff happen? You, you go... 
you go into your backyard, you hear the birds clattering, you see the hills, you see the trees, you see the flowers, uh, you hear the birds and so on, um, and it's all beautiful and peaceful, and yet you know that in a similar location somewhere in the world, some atrocity is being committed. Because of this. Because people are thinking in a way, in, in a beautiful environment that they've been placed in, they're thinking in this crazy way. I mean, once, once we go away from God, once we hide from God, once we use the creation to get away from God instead of appreciating that it's from God, you see it's all lost. The only way forward is, is down, you know, it's, it's just going to devolute all the way. I have a problem with, with understanding the craziness of people, the, the anger of people, the, um, the corruption of people, the stupidity of people, until I look at myself. And then I see those things. So this is why faith is so necessary. This is why God's word is absolutely so vital in order to get the right interpretation of life. Do you see? This is why biblical worldview is the only worldview that makes sense. Everything else is all... uh, skew F and it's all crazy and it's all going to end up with uh, us doing our independent thing with no final answers because we're not coming to the person whose word is the answer. I'm getting a bit preachy here, aren't I? So, um, so here they are, they're hiding from God and God, who of course knows what's going on, calls to Adam. He doesn't call to Eve. He calls to Adam because that's where the authority is. That's where the responsibility is. I don't like the fact as a husband that that God makes me responsible for my family. I'd much rather the responsibility was given to my wife so that she got in trouble. (laughs) Do you see? But unfortunately, I'm the guy in the marriage and therefore the buck stops with me. Now, it doesn't mean that she's not responsible for her sins, but the buck does stop with me, you see? So God calls to Adam and I just simply ask, where are you? Because you're not where you should be. There's so much that where are you? You should be here, ready to meet me. Because I've made you for this moment. I've made you for this relationship. So where are you? Well, Adam... And and, and you can look more into that and, you know, like... Is is there an undercurrent here of saying... um, not only where are you uh, locationally, <laughs> but where are you at as far as uh, in your being? 
what, what is it that stops you from being where you should be? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid. Why? Because I was naked and I hid myself. Notice he uses some words here that he knows the meaning of, but they're kind of negative words. Do you see? Hid myself, afraid. Why does he know the word afraid? I mean, we're in Eden here. What's the, what uses the word afraid in, he, in Eden? Scared, you know, all that stuff. Well, he knows the word, do you see? He has the vocabulary. But, no, it's not that he, he, he knows the word anyway. He understands the concept. But, you see, he shouldn't have had to ever use it. It's okay knowing about something... All right, but feeling it, experiencing it, is a very different thing. But he makes it part of the excuse. I was afraid. So uh, I hid myself. Again, hid. What's there to hide from? It's interesting, and you can go, you can kind of think about this stuff, and we should think about it, not right now, but we should think about this stuff. There's an awful lot in here that you don't just, you know, rush through because it's, this is your Bible reading for the day, and you can get a chapter read. Just think about this. You're saying because he is no longer close to God? Yeah. And he's a fallen man? Yes. He's actually died. He has died. But death, you see, in the Bible, without it it being spelled out for you, death is what? It's these marks. It's this distance from God, this fear of God, this hiding from God, and this disjunction between the man and the woman, the human relationship. It's also going to work itself out in physical death eventually. But primarily, it's this um, separation from God. Mm -hmm. And what that does, by the way, that seals the man and the woman in their independence. It seals them there. Without faith, you can't get back to dependence on God. So you can't do good works because you're still do, you're still in independence. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Do you see that? You've got to have the right motive, the right movement. <clears throat> doesn't it also show too that they had already covered themselves, but even the covering of the fig leaves or whatever it might have been was still not enough. We're getting there. Yeah, yeah but right. Um, so what does God now say verse 11 who told you you were naked where's your authority now naked obviously here is uh, used in a pejorative sense I mean you know you don't go to a dog who hasn't got one of those silly dog things on coats on 
and say, well, because it hasn't got a dog coat on, it's naked. I mean, it's just a dog. And it's the way dogs are. Even chihuahuas that don't have much hair or hairless, I mean, whatever. They're not really naked. You know, pigs aren't naked, are they? You don't have any hair on them much, but I mean, they're not naked. So why are we naked? Like that, do you see? It's kind of a weird thing when you think about it. Um, it's, it's really because there's some kind of guilt that has come in um, that has kind of triggered this, this recognition that I'm changed, I'm, I'm ashamed, I'm, I don't know. There's just some stuff that's going on there that's triggering this. No, no, I think it is clothing, but it's 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 triggered by something else. Yes, it's a it's a complete reconceptualization of themselves. Um, who told you you were naked? Well, not even a serpent did that. Um, they did. But they should never have even been in a position to have told themselves that. Some things, there's some knowledge we're not supposed to have. God knows all the bad stuff there is to know. He doesn't want us to have it. He doesn't want us to have that knowledge. We can know that there's a lot of bad stuff that might happen if we don't follow God. Yeah, the day you eat, you'll surely die. That's bad, yes? We can know that, but we don't have to experience it. God knows it to its core because he knows all things. But that's a knowledge we were never supposed to have. And we have it. And it is, it is so pervaded us that we are not even able to conceive any thought without its presence. It so distorts and corrupts our logic, corrupts our understanding and interaction with the world and with each other, our talking with ourselves, our reading of the Bible. It is utterly pervasive. Now, not as bad as it can be, it can be counteracted to a large extent, particularly by the Holy Spirit as he works in us as we obey his word. But why is it so easy to do something wrong? And why is it so difficult to do something that's right? <clears throat> Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? It's not like God needs the information, but it is a rhetorical question, one of those, you know, uh, the worst rhetorical question ever asked, as far as the most shaming. Have you eaten of the tree that I told you not to eat of it? The, then the man said, Yes, I'm afraid I have. Let me confess. Let me come clean here. Yeah, I was willful. I, 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 I sinned. Please have mercy on me. 
I repent in dust and ashes. This is, this is sin. This is what sin does. What sin does is, is say, no, there's another alternative to this. That's what I should do, but there's another way. So here it is. The woman that you gave me. She gave me of the tree and I ate. You know, it's kind of like, you know, uh, when, uh, during the, the wilderness wanderings, do you remember, in the book of Exodus, and Moses is up in the, in the mount, and he's there too long, or so they think. So they start uh, saying, well, well, where's Moses who brought us out of Egypt? We don't know what's happened to him. Make us gods that we can serve. So Aaron makes them golden calves, yes, and they start doing a, you know, a little bacchanalia around these things. And Moses comes down and he breaks the, uh, the tablets rushes in among them and confronts his brother and says, what's going on? And, he, and what's he reply? He replies that, oh, well, we uh, made the, you know, we fashioned these things and they came out like calves. I mean, it's such a dumb answer. It's like, ping, you know, oh, don't ask me, I don't know, you know. Things just got out of control. That, that's the same as what's going on here. The woman you gave me. That's not an answer. I ate because of the woman that you gave me. So, the woman is more to, uh, at fault than I am. That's kind of typical male, male behaviour. And you, God, are more at fault than the woman. Because you gave it to me. So, actually, I'm off the hook. Okay? <laughs> You know, anyone would have done the same in my position because of the the impossible situation that you put me in. The Lord God said to the woman, doesn't even answer that one. <laughs> what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent, so she learns quickly, the serpent deceived me and I ate. There's actually more truth in that one. So the Lord God said to the serpent, he doesn't ask him any questions. Doesn't ask him any questions. He's not going to, you know, go backwards and forwards with the conversation with the serpent. There's no conversation to be had. All the the serpent's going to get is judgment. Um, Serpent knows, knows he's wrong. God knows he's wrong. There's no point in arguing about this. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Saviour, when you stand before God, uh, Romans chapter 3 says that your mouth will be closed. It's not you uh, having a, a reasonable conversation with God to try and tell him that he's wrong or mistaken and give him 20 reasons why he shouldn't send you to hell. There won't be any conversation at all. You'll be quiet and God will damn you. Because you've done this. Simple as that. It's scary stuff, but it's the truth. God's God. When we see God, then if we don't know, if we're not covered by the righteousness of Christ, then 
you know, we'll, we'll be undone, as Isaiah was, remember? In chapter 6, we'll be undone. It's like, okay, well, I'm a sinner. Game over. So, uh, he doesn't ask the serpent because, uh, another thing, the serpent has no chance to repent. Because you have done this, you are cursed. Uh, above, uh, sorry, more than all cattle who he was made with, remember? More than every beast, sorry, beast of the field. On your belly you shall go. That seems to intimate to me that he wasn't on his belly before this. That seems to show, I'm inferring, you don't have to follow me here, but if he's, if one of the curses is to go on his belly, then obviously he wasn't on his belly. Otherwise it's like, God saying, well, you can have more of what you've got. Which doesn't make any sense, does it? Um, if there were physical, physiological changes to the serpent, perhaps, again, I'm speculating. But I, this is a speculation. So please don't take this and teach it as biblical truth. But perhaps there were physiological changes in other created beings too. It's possible. Excuse me. On your belly you shall go, you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity, enmity is an unremitting um, hatred, between you and the woman. Um... We're in the 21st century, so this is always a dicey thing to say, but I hope that, um, that this illustration can be understood. So, somebody who's been through a messy divorce with somebody, yes? Um, maybe a, a mutual friend comes to them a few months afterwards and said, oh, I saw your ex in the store. And... Uh, they were doing this nice thing, this, and the person, you know, the, the former spouse is thinking, yeah, right. Okay, just thinking everything evil, all kinds of different bad motives for this person, because this person is demonized in their sight. They cannot think anything good about them, because of the bitterness of the divorce and all of that. Do you see? Uh, he, are you, is that an okay illustration? Not, I'm not saying any of you have been through that. I'm just saying, do you understand the illustration? That's enmity. Okay, She is not going to be reconciled. She is not going to believe anything good about him. He's not going to believe anything good about her. Not for a good long while. That's enmity. So there is enmity between the serpent... Here, probably speaking, because of what happens next, to Satan himself, who in Revelation chapter 12, I think it's verse 6 or 9, uh, he's identified as the devil, Satan, okay, the old serpent. And um, I should not do that anymore. And uh, between you and the woman... And between your seed and her seed. 
And he, so we know that the seed here, because seed in English has Zerah in Hebrew. It can be a collective noun as well as a singular. And um, he, singular, a person, shall bruise your head. And the word here can mean crush. And you shall bruise his heel. Um, what's worse, a crushed heel or a crushed head? Crushed heel hurts and will impair you, but you're still alive. A crushed head, you don't move anymore. So this is a prediction of the seed of the woman, not the seed of the man. And you'll find out throughout Genesis it's going to be the man's seed and so on. But here it's the woman's. That's kind of weird. Uh, the seed of the woman will crush your head. Now, that did not happen at Calvary. That's when the serpent bruised his heel. We're waiting for Christ to crush Satan's head. That doesn't happen until Revelation chapter 20. Okay? which in my understanding of Scripture hasn't happened yet. In Paul's understanding of Scripture, in Romans 16, hasn't happened yet either. Because he said Satan will, uh, sorry, God will soon crush the Satan under your feet, or whatever, something like that. <clears throat> so this is what's called, and this is where we're going to leave it for the night, This is uh, what is sometimes called um, the prot or the proto-evangelium because it has to sound good. It means the pre, like the pre-gospel, the pre-good news. Uh, now, it's not really, I mean, it, it is good news, but it's not really good news. Um, there's not enough here in the text to tell us it's, it's a gospel. All it is is a pronouncement against the serpent, that the serpent's going to get his. You see? And through uh, a son from the woman that he's tempted. Do you see? From the very vessel that he used to destroy mankind the conqueror is going to come to destroy him. Kind of, you know, that is divine justice for you. And there's no intimation at this point here that Adam and Eve are looking at each other and smiling at each other because they're grateful that a saviour is being promised to them. Jesus dying on the cross. No, there's no Jesus on the cross here at all. This has got to do with what we now know as Jesus Second coming, the actual crushing of the serpent's head, and actually after that. The bruising of the heel, well, is enigmatic. It's too enigmatic to know that it's talking about what's going to happen in thousands of years' time under a Roman rule. So, um, this is just the doom of the serpent.
We call it the uh, Protevangelium or something like this, the first gospel, because we know the identity of this woman's seed is Jesus Christ who is our saviour. And so it is God right away when we're reading back into this, but we can say from hindsight that uh, this is a promise of deliverance for man and it's a promise of deliverance for the earth. Remember the creation project. Just because it all went pear-shaped in chapter 3 doesn't mean God's given up on it. He's going to rectify it. It's going to correct it. It's going to take a few thousand years. It's going to take an awful lot of death and disease and horrid things. But God is going to rectify it because he doesn't give up on his perfect plan. And it's going to be rectified by this promised seed. Is this a C3, C2, what do you call this? Uh, Well, as far as it being a a promise of the gospel, you would have to say that that's a C3 because what you would have to do is that you would have to go hunting for other passages in the Old Testament and New Testament and put things together and come up with an inference to the best explanation, which still wouldn't give you an absolutely airtight interpretation, but one that satisfies, yes, most people unless you're a liberal, um, then it's just a snake. Um, But it's a C1 in the fact that this is speaking about, or maybe C2, uh, Satan's doom. It's, It's kind of in pictorial language, but there is a he who is going to do damage and going to kill you. And we've got that much. So that's C1. Do you see? All right. Uh, Any questions? We'll close there. I'd like to say thank you for, you know, I think in the early part of my Christian walk, I um, I had a confidence that I could read scripture and I could read it and that God meant what he said, and I could have confidence and stand boldly upon it. And then as time went on, I learned that there were all these other things that I had to know to be able to rightly understand uh, the uh, eschatology and, uh, you know, just, I mean, so much Mm -hmm. that I couldn't really understand the Bible. Right. But, um, I don't know, just, and I just been neat in that, Right. And I hope as we move through this that that's going to be reinforced. Yeah, over and over again. There are difficult places in the Bible, lots of them. Okay? There are places where people differ with in their interpretation. Um, but that's we're going to discuss that further on. Uh, but there are parameters of understandings as well, which are very Im- important. Parameters which, if you're a if you're a C4 or C5er, in other words, you bring a lot of your own inferences to Scripture, just like Eve did. Um, 
then you'll step outside of those parameters and you'll start adding some stuff that it doesn't say and you'll start lessening some stuff. So, for example, when it says this is for Israel, you'll lessen that and say that's, that's, the land's not important. The land of Israel's not important. Even though God says the land. You see? That's what we do. Even in our safe state, our default position is to think for ourselves independently of what God says. And then what we do is we baptize it and say that's what the word of God says. It's biblical. Any other questions or anything before we close? Okay. Could you could you help us develop that that argument where, like you stated earlier, there are contemporary, famous or infamous (laughs) speakers, but but I run into this all the time where. Yes, but he, you know, I learned so much, and he's so inspiring, and and they want to dismiss the error and say, well, it's all okay because mm-hmm. uh, I'll I'll promise you I'll do this. All right, I'm not going to go and have a go at Joyce Meyer. All right, because anyone with any common sense should be able to see through that if they've got a Bible in front of them. Um, but, and I hope I haven't trodden anyone's toes by saying that. Les, I, I knew it. <laughs> I wondered where he got his sermons from. So, um, so um, I'm not going to do that because that would take us way off. And I, I would probably do that if we were doing systematic theology. And I'm not just uh, picking on her. You understand. But, but, but what I would do is I will bring in some biblical scholars who are good, solid, godly men who I think have got it way wrong. And I will read from their works. You're not there yet. I mean, not, I'm not saying that, that some of you are not fairly well read, but, but we've got to make more progress before I bring them in, start reading from, the, in, uh, from these big tomes and it starts to make sense to you. You start to follow, hold on, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong, but it sounds good. Do you see? So, but I will, I will do that at some point. Uh, just your, your identification and defining C1 through C4 helps immensely in that process too. Helps me. I did it for myself. Yeah. Yeah. But you're still outside of clear C1, C2, mm-hmm. you're still, you know, the argument. And, and oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's not foolproof, um, but I, de- I developed it for myself because I wanted something that I could show people that they could get, you know, fairly clearly. And if it's valuable for nothing else, it's valuable for uh, saying that all of the major doctrines of the Bible that you must believe are either C1s or C2s. So when people say, well, you must believe this doctrine, and usually you know, there's all these inferences. It's like, well, where's the Bible say that? And they just put these verses together that don't say these things, and they ignore verses that contradict them. You know, it's just that. Um, and they say it's biblical. You know, they, it, it's me trying to understand what's going on. Why do they do that? 
And it's because of the distance that they allow between what the God, the Word of God says and what they want it to say. You see? So, my PhDs, uh, my, my uh, dissertations in theological methodology, which is extremely boring, but that's why I'm interested in this stuff. 